I have uh, listened with interest to the, the worship expression that we've all just enjoyed, uh, to Helen's word of encouragement. And uh, interestingly enough, we never colluded, but this morning I wanted to speak on seeing our future through God's eyes. Uh, what can happen is that often when we receive a promise from heaven, um, it takes a while for it to come to fruition. And so there seems to be the season of, you know, silence and we struggle and wonder whether or not God's denial means God's delay. Um, and that's not how it is, you know, or let's just say, if there's a delay, does that mean it's God's denial? And so um, when I heard what it was, and there was a little moment in our worship where we sustained that thing about the promises of God, that God's faithful, God's faithful. And so I love it when there is a synchronizing of hearts for those of us who take a microphone on a Sunday morning, because God clearly wants to speak to you as a congregation. And during the worship, I went to my phone and I found this text in Jeremiah 29 verse 11, which you may have read for yourself, but it says, for I know the thoughts that I think towards you, says the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. He says, you'll call upon me and you'll go and pray to me. And he says, I will listen to you. You will seek me and you will find me. You will search me with all of your heart. And I love that, you know, my posture of heart in coming to the UK um, and just how the world has been impacted recent times by all of what it is that has impacted us. Um, I kind of lent into a space, which is normally the space that I minister from, is where I will share inconvenient truths. Um, and it's not so that we could unsettle people's heart, but very often people need to hear the inconvenient truth. But I felt this morning in particular that God just said to me, you know what, all you're going to do is just state the obvious. What the people need to hear is that actually I have a love for this nation. I have a love for them. I have a love for God's people and I have a love for sinners. And I was somewhat arrested. I just began to hold back and I just thought, well, God, all right, if it's not to be that, which clearly for me felt like it was the obvious way to go, was just to perhaps draw comparisons between God's rule and the kingdom rule versus what it is that we're seeing. And I just felt more importantly to let you know that there is a massive explosion of God's heart of love, grace, and mercy towards this nation. And so therefore, to speak on what it is that I'm speaking about, you need to know that God will always create the atmosphere. He will always create the circumstances for you to walk into what it is that he has promised to you. God has promised this church, promised the church collectively in the city, in spite of what might have hit the news, in spite of what has happened. God looks at you and he says, no, well, listen, that's not my plan. This is my plan. My plan exists in your heart because I've put a promise inside of your heart. My first living memory of me being called into the ministry was when I was four years old. Uh, I was born in the Copper Belt. We were under British rule. We were a British subject. So the first national anthem I ever learned to sing was God Save the Queen as a little boy scout. But I remember as a four-year-old, there was a project that the Anglican Church in the city that we were living in, a little town called Kitwe, um, they had a little program happening over Easter. We were a babysitting program. You know, bring your kids and we're going to build, uh, you know, what we're thinking of just there is the Green Hill far away outside the city wall. You know, that vibe of Golgotha and the crucifixion scene. And, you know, here you go as a four-year-old, T, there's going to be mud, so I want to play in the mud. That's cool. 
I remember sitting there and um, <clears throat> my mother walked up to me. She'd gone and done some shopping and she came back. I was the only kid left, but I was so into this little project of building that I didn't mind the fact that mother wasn't there and I was you know, totally engrossed. Now I'm on my own. In fact, it comes to me now, I loved being on my own even when I was a little like. And so um, she came to me and she looked at what it was that obviously I had helped and she said, so what do you want to be when you're big? It's funny I remember this. And she, I said to her, well, and in a four-year-old's mind, all you're thinking of is anything in a uniform, you know. I want to be a fireman. I want to be a policeman, maybe a soldier. And so I said that to her. I said, yeah, I want to be a fireman. And she said, I want you to be a minister. And I said, okay. And I carried on. <laughs> <laughs> and so from the age of four until the age of 40, <laughs> when I really stepped out to begin to lead and to fulfill what it was that God had put on my life, there were a whole lot of things that needed to happen. There was just this preparation phase. Now, at no point, having remembered that and having said that, okay, did I realize that God was preparing me. God had given me the family that I was part of, born into, a dysfunctional family, a family that was really, really aggressive. My father was an alcoholic. But when he was drunk, he was an aggressive man. I have no living memory of me ever sitting with my father and getting any, any advice from him ever. I don't feel sorry for me because I think I'm okay today, you know. But just that context of growing up in a dysfunctional family where as kids we grew up, I left school, didn't finish my final year exams. I just couldn't live at home. Had to go back, obviously, and finish school, but not at that school. I went to college in town. And so you live in the space of, of just then becoming a surfer and, and becoming a professional and, and achieving at the age of 16, 17, and just growing up in that community. And it was in that community, incidentally, that's where I learned family. That's why I learned brotherhood. And even still to this day, we're still connections. We're still strongly linked. And so you grow up. The schools I went to, they weren't the best schools in the city that we were living in in Durban, not at all. And so God would have me grow up in those schools and even there still be able to fear authority. Where did I get that from? Just, I was always respecting of authority. God put that inside of me, just in the midst of all of this rebellion around about me, here I was just growing up under his guidance and under his tuition. And so there were times when I think of myself as a teenager, I would, put, I would, I would have different permutations of where I was gonna run away to because I couldn't stay at home. That was my first waking thought. Is it today I'm going to leave? What am I going to do? Let's just work this out. What do I take with me? Definitely a surfboard. But where am I going to go? And so you live with that. And then you sneak into the house. Because if the moment there's eye contact, there's aggression. And so you just live like that. And then I go off and compulsory military service. And when I get there, I decide, you know what? I'm going to put my heart into this thing. And so I end up signing a permanent force contract with a reconnaissance unit. And then you carry on and, you know, then, then, then God's preparing all along. He's preparing for me a wife. And she's the sweet little Afrikaans girl that's in, in, a, in a private school in Bloemfontein of all places. You know, does God not even wear Bloemfontein is? But anyway, she's being raised up in this very, very tight-knit family. Her dad's a pastor. Her mother's probably, I never had mothering problems, mother-in-law problems. She was the most dynamic, amazing woman. And so suddenly she's, my wife has been prepared for me and I'm being prepared for my wife. And one day God's gonna bring us together and he's gonna amalgamate our giftings and our ministry and he's just gonna allow us to walk with him. And so you look back now that we're the age that we're in and we can look back and we say, you know what? God is faithful.
Because along the route, yes, indeed, there were some specifics that were given to us by way of promises, some specifics that say this is what's going to happen. And when you hear them for the first time, you kind of think, me? Really? Us? Oh, God, do you really mean that? And then you begin to look back and you see, oh, oh that, that's what God meant. Oh, and now we see it. And then he gives us our kids. And the kids, as you know, they also contribute into your life. And, 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 and you look back and you just think, you know, God, you're so clever. Your promises, your promises to generations. And so God looks at the church in the UK and he says the same thing. Man, I think of the incredible, incredible contribution that this nation has made to Christianity. And I marvel. When you do formal study, some of the books that you're going to read come from the annals of theology and theologians that took up space in this nation. And you read it and you read and you just push it away and you just think, oh my goodness, that's profound. And so don't tell me that's not seed that has been sown for a harvest. And you can call it an end time harvest. I don't know when Jesus is coming back again, but I'm just looking forward to what he's doing now. And so as a church, God has spoken. As a church, God has said, you know what? The things that I've got planned for you are good. Good simply meaning fit for purpose, fit for purpose. We, uh, as Ant mentioned, we moved from the city of Durban to plant a church in Pretoria, which is 600 kilometers from the coast. I don't know what that is in miles, but uh, it's far away. There's no ocean in Pretoria. So, of course, me being a surfer and competitive one as well, when people heard I was going to Pretoria, it didn't make any sense to them. And it wasn't like we had a burning bush experience. It probably would have helped. It was just a case of sitting down with someone and they just mentioned to us, so uh, part of the team that we were part of, uh, the question was asked, they want to know where you and Nadine are going to plant. And I just said, well, what about, what about Pretoria? Of course, there was Cape Town that we could have considered, but I got bad surfing results in Cape Town. The water's too cold. I nearly got swallowed by a whale. No jokes, all right? And, and the reason why I was so frightened in that moment because in my headspace was Jonah. I know that whales do swallow men. Okay, I'm not kidding you. It was horrible. And so Cape Town was out. Bloemfontein, they didn't want to go back to where his school was at. And so we just decided, why not Pretoria? Pretoria is a big city, a huge university town. And uh, Nadine said, but it's Afrikaans. I said, but you're Afrikaans, so we're halfway there. And so we kind of stepped into a space where I looked very, very Durban, and uh, I decided to plant a church in this very, very conservative city. And I remember after a month, I thought, gee, you know, it's just four of us here. We're meeting in a lounge, um, our sitting room. I thought, let me show myself friendly. So I found out that there was a pastor's fraternal that was meeting, and I kind of went in looking very Durban and sat down with this group of pastors, and they all knew each other, and the common language was Afrikaans. Uh, I took it at school for 12 years, but still don't speak it very well. And so now I'm sitting in here, and, and then they break up into small groups, and this is gonna be a moment where you can share. I mean, it's all very good, so I'm sitting with these people that I don't know, there's four or five of them around me, and uh, they're all in patch leather jackets, and I'm sitting in jeans and a T-shirt. Um, I still got peroxided hair, so I look like a sucked mango pip. And, um, <clears throat> Hi, my name's Ashley. Uh, I'm from Durban. Really? And what prompted your move? Well, now I've come to plant a church. And the one gentleman said, um, that's interesting. So did you know that Pretoria is the graveyard for English churches? I'm going, oh, hello. <laughs> Lord, did, did you know that, Lord? <laughs> 
And I mean, it hit me. I just thought, oh my goodness, gee, this, this could be fun. And I remember going home and saying to Nadine, you know, they just said that Pretoria is the graveyard for English churches. And it really worried me. So I went outside that night, that evening, and I just began to pace around the garden. And I was just lifting up my hands, kind of almost feeling like I wanted to moan. And I just said, God, well, so far, we're here. We've got rid of everything and we've moved into a context that we're in now. And I just felt prompted to read that text in Matthew 25, where it speaks about the, the, the master who left. And before he left, he went to his different servants and he said, you know what, I'm going to entrust to you, according to your ability, meaning simply this, that the investment I make in you is what you're able to embrace for full. I'm not giving you something that you're not able to embrace or give traction to or give life to. He said, I'm going to give you five talents. He went to the next person and he said, you know, according to your ability, I'm going to entrust, I'm going to invest into you this. And it was, call it bags of gold. Then he went to the last person and he said, I'm going to give you one according to your ability. And the reality is that we sit here, some of us are five talented individuals, some of us are two talented individuals, and some of us are just only have one talent. The point is around what it is that you're doing with what it is that God has given you, because clearly from that text, where there was a prolific or a disciplined embracing of the entrustment, there seems to have been a multiplication that actually came from the master. And so what happens is the master comes back, but this is what the scripture says about that particular moment. It says, after a long time, the master of those servants returned to settle accounts with them. Now to settle accounts, in his heart, he was really hoping that they'd embraced the investment, that they'd taken what it was that was given to them according to their ability, and they'd gone out and they had been meaningful and done good things with it. So in his heart, he'd come back prepared by the way the story carries out, is that he was wanting to make sure that they were going to be blessed. That's God's heart for us. So when we've been given an entrustment, and after a long time, an entrustment would simply be just the word that is spoken to you, the promise that is given to you. Very often it just comes through the scriptures in your own personal quiet time reading, but often it comes to you through the voice of someone who has a prophetic gift that will just impart something, synchronize their hearts with God's heart for you and impart something. And that lands in your heart as this entrustment, this investment this is what God wants for you, for him to build his church so that Jesus can come again. You and I need to embrace that entrustment. And so it doesn't always stay there because that entrustment might necessitate a particular function that Nadine and I are in right now. But that function always changes because the entrustment, if we are true to the investment thereof, we will see that our function then begins to shift into another place of increased responsibility. And so that's what happens with these guys. The master comes back and he says this, he says, well done. How many of you would like to receive a well done? He says, you're a faithful servant. He says, you've been faithful just with a few things. He says, I will put you in charge of many things. Oh, we love that word in charge. Us, I'm going to lead. No, no, no. It might require leadership, but let me tell you, leadership doesn't exist without responsibility placed on your shoulders. He might want you to have authority, but with authority comes responsibility. And yes, of course. And that's only simply because of what you've done with that entrustment that, he was, that has been given to you. So this is what every one of the servants, well, two of them at least, experienced. Approval, recognition, increased responsibility, partnership that's a happy one. 
didn't have a contract between them. It was just a covenant. And then, of course, he comes to the final guy, and he's actually furious. He says, oh, that's a terrible way to live. You didn't invest. You didn't embrace. He says, it's criminal. He says, um, if you knew I was after the best, why did you do less than the least? He says, the least you could have done would have been to invest the sum of the bankers, where at least I would have gotten a little interest. And then he does this. He says, all right, so what's going to happen now is we're going to take that back from you, and we're going to give it to the people who were prolific. I remember reading that and then just stepping back and saying, God, dare I, can I be as cheeky as to say every church in this city has had a word of promise spoken over it. That's how God works. You wouldn't start a church if God didn't promise a future. You wouldn't start a church if there was not a preferred future for that city because that church needs to become a lung in the city that breathes in the toxic and breathes out the life of God. And so God will make sure that every one of us has a, perhaps a little different redemptive gift inside of us. And everyone, that's the entrustment. And so we've got to be true to that entrustment. But there are many, many prophetic words given the fact that Pretoria was the graveyard of English churches. What, what happens to all of those words that were spoken? And I said, God, your word says that your word never returns to you unaccomplished, but always fulfills the very thing that it was intended to do. Dare I, Lord, ask you tonight that I make myself available. Been going a month, but all of those promises that were spoken that perhaps are just living in a place of limbo, whether those promises were forfeited, whether they were given up, whether there was just a surrender, those promises are still out there. God, pick me. Pick this church, Capital City Church International, affectionately known as 3CR. I said, can you pick this church to live and to breathe through those promises? A year ago, we were invited back to that church. As Anne said, subsequent to us starting it and planting it, we moved on to transition the leadership of the church that we now lead. They had just completed a two and a half thousand seat auditorium, which incidentally is packed every Sunday. Now that's no credit to myself because I understand how church planting works. Anne's a church planter, he knows this to be true. Bible says, Paul says, let me just bring this into perspective, people. One plants, another waters, but it's God who gives the increase. So let's just remember that. It's God who gives the increase. So us moving away, we never saw the detail. We were just embracing the promise over our lives that we should go. Along the way, God decides, well, I respond to obedience. And in fact, what's happened is, there were people waiting on the other side of your obedience. And look at this now. That church itself has planted many churches. That church itself has gone out into the nations and just become effective. And we stand back and we just watch. We're not involved anymore. But what we can say is that God's word will be fulfilled. He'll stand by it and he will do it as long as there is this in our hearts. Obedience. We will hear. Well done. You're good and faithful. I want to just quickly, quickly talk a little about seeing the future through God's eyes. I love the story of Hannah and Samuel. And it speaks about how this all came about. In the very first chapter of the first book of Samuel, there was a certain man. 
and he has two wives. One's called Hannah and the other is Penai. Penai has children, but Hannah doesn't have any. And you've got this very godly man because he makes sure that on a regular basis, he's a good Jewish boy. He goes off and he worships in the temple. But actually what you do notice as you read through the account is that Hannah, being childless, is actually embarrassed about this. And her, the other wife in the house, for me, is the first time that I guess we've got biblical evidence that bigamy isn't uh, as happy as it, people think it is because there was a lot of jealousy and a lot of favoritism, which probably would happen. And it turns out that Hannah was the favorite wife. And so if there was any food to be given, well, of course, Penn and I would get food with her kids. But you know what? It says here that Elkanah just made sure that Hannah got the best portion. And then it goes on. And so year after year, Hannah would also go up to the Lord's house. And then it describes just how distressed her soul was. She'd pray to the Lord and she'd weep bitterly. I mean, you can imagine those of you who perhaps have experienced that season of just being childless and how you've come before God. Uh, we had that that's very close to home to us because we had a daughter, Starla, who was longing to have kids. Her younger sister had kids, but yes, she was close, reaching the age of 40, being childless. And I remember as, as, as I just kind of reflect, Nadine and I would just pray. We would just pray and say, God, oh, they're going to be such good parents. And somehow there just was this delay. They'd received a promise that they were going to have three kids, and yeah, she just couldn't fall pregnant. And three years ago, she fell pregnant and had a set of twins. Within nine months of the twins being born, guess what? She falls pregnant again. <laughs> so we're going to babysit in the next two weeks. But anyway, <laughs> but this is it. I mean, you look at this. She's distressed and she's in anguish. And she says, please, God, look upon this handmaid of yours who's afflicted by being barren. And then as she continues to pray, the priest, Eli, he notices her mouth moving, but there's nothing coming out. So he just presumes she's drunk. So he goes to her, he says, listen, I think you should stop your drinking. You know, this is not good. And she says, no, 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 you're missing it. But Eli was in a bad place himself. So instead of coming and expressing a heart of sensitivity and ask her the question, first of all, is there anything wrong? No, he was just a self-indulgent priest anyway. And as a result of his leadership, it just says that there was no vision in the land. The word of God had grown dim. And so what happens is you've got her just in this place of desperation. And she says, no, 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 I'm not intoxicated. I'm just desperate to have a child. And he says, all right, well, God bless you. And uh, let's hope he answers your prayers. He's not the most encouraging priest. And then you see that uh, she falls pregnant. And the incredible thing is, is that when she falls pregnant, she calls. Or when the child is born, what she does is she, uh, she calls the child Samuel, which means God hears Man, this is an intentional woman. She'd prayed. She was going to make sure that for the rest of his life and for the rest of her life and for the rest of the other wife's life was going to hear the word Samuel, God hears. That was going to be a testimony, God hears. Samuel, God hears. God hears, God hears. God hears. Everyone, every time Samuel's name was mentioned, God hears. And she said, yeah, that's true. She lived with that testimony for the rest of her life. And today, thousands of people live with that testimony. God hears. Simply because we've got a testimony in the scriptures of how it happened. And then there's a moment in scripture where she prays and she just releases this prayer of absolute joy and delight. And it's thrilled because prayer's been answered. And now she promised that this child would grow up in the priesthood. And then she weans him and takes him to Eli to serve in the temple. So what did the people see? 
the people saw this woman who was always perhaps appeared to be miserable. The people saw this woman who'd always be weeping. The people saw this woman who was always excluded from the mums to mums moments. That's what the people saw. And then one day things changed. You see, because God sees us differently. We need to see our future through God's eyes. And so what did God see? God saw a man that two books of the Bible were gonna be named after him. God saw a man who was gonna become the very first prophet in the Bible. God saw a man who was just simply an answer to the prayer. So he looked for that struggle and that trial and he knew to birth a prophet, what I need is a certain mom. I need a certain womb and this is the right womb for it. And so God sees differently. God sees a man who's gonna anoint the very first king of Israel. That's what God sees. He always sees the end result. Well, you and I, we just breaststroke through the mistiness of, oh, what's happening around about me? Oh, yeah, that's right. I'm going to grab into this because it seems like life. And God has this overriding picture of your life. And he says, oh, I know the plans I have for you. They're good. Actually, plans of peace. What about Moses? <laughs> Here he is, the little baby hidden in the bulrushes in crocodile-infested river. <laughs> Where do you think the name Nile Crocodile comes from? <laughs> Yeah. And so what do the people see? Well, they see a man growing up in Pharaoh's palace. They see a man killing an Egyptian and then having to run for his life. They see a man living in the wilderness for 40 years. They see a man who encounters God in a burning bush. They see a man delivering his people out of slavery and taking them to the edge of their promised land. But what does God see? God sees a man who's gonna give us <laughs> the first five books of the Bible. God sees a man who's gonna give us the 10 commandments, which actually becomes the moral rules for the universe, let alone this earth. That's what God sees. People just see, oh, this man here, look what he's done, look what he's done. If Moses was here today, he'd tell you, God's delays are not God's denials. What about Peter? We see a fisherman at the Sea of Galilee. We see him coming to meet Jesus, being brought by his brother Andrew. We see him cutting off a man's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane. We see a man who betrays Jesus, but what does God see? A man standing under the fire of God, standing up and saying, oh, you want an answer for all of this? This is that which was spoken by the prophet. Your sons and your daughters will prophesy. And you see just this man lifting the lid on understanding so that people can grow into the fullness of God. We see a man who walks the streets and his shadow falls on people and they get healed. See, that was God's plan. My goodness. What about Mary? What do people see? They just saw this humble teenage girl living in her teenage world, texting her friends and loving to do what teenage girls do. But God saw a mother for his son. I was reading the words of a song that was written. See, people just see what they see at face value. You think about Mary. Can you imagine Jesus going to Mary and saying, Mom, tonight, bedtime story. Can you tell me about those three wise men that came to visit me and their gifts? What do you do with them? Tell me about those shepherds that were watching the sheep in the flock. Sheep in the flock, in the fields. Can you just imagine that? This is what people maybe saw, maybe heard as she was in the mom's, mom to mom's group and she was just saying, the other day, this is what Jesus did. He 
kind of fell on the ground and scratched his knee. And, and the other day we were out at the temple and I forgot him. I forgot God and I went home, you know. Just think about those things. <laughs> but you see, this is what God saw. Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day walk on water? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would save our sons and daughters? Did you know that your baby boy has come to make you new? This child that you delivered will soon deliver you. Mary, did you know that your baby boy will give sight to the blind man? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would calm the storm with his hand? Mary, did you know that your baby boy was, has worked with angels? When you kiss the little baby, you kiss the face of God. Mary, did you know the blind will see, the deaf will hear, the dead will live again, the lame will leap, the dumb will speak, the praises of the Lamb. Mary, did you know that your baby boy is Lord of all creation? Mary, did you know that your baby boy would one day rule the nations? Did you know, Mary? And Mary would say, oh, God's delays are not God's denials. Let me conclude by, I remember watching Sir David Frost as he narrated through a documentary on Billy Graham. And there is a particular occasion where Billy Graham in 1959 is sitting in the Moscow Olympic Stadium on his own, empty stadium. He's got his hands together and he's praying. 30 years later, 1989, he's in that exact same stadium and the Russian military band are playing, mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming the Lord. I don't know about you, but if Billy Graham was here today, he'd say, oh, hold on a minute. God's delays, 30 years, are not God's denials for that nation of Russia. That incidentally needs lots of prayer. And so can I say to you people, I'm going back to that text that I read earlier, I know the thoughts that I think towards you, said the Lord. Peace. They're not evil. Did you know that the word evil actually has within its explanation in Hebrew the word spoil. So the devil is referred to the evil one. He's going to spoil things. And so if he can, and you allow him to, he'll come in and he'll spoil, and he'll just make sure that there's some level of hindrance. But what I'm hearing here is God says, no, 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 my thoughts are peace. And I'm going to give you an expected end. So if you're living with expectation, I do feel the fact that I've mentioned Hannah, that some of you may be in that space where you've been contemplating and considering ch children. And I hear there's just been a recent biological growth to the church. A couple of babies have been born. That's wonderful. All right. <clears throat> but I want to say to you today, hold on to that promise. Nadine and I have a testimony with our own daughter of her holding on to the promises of God, together with her husband as well. And hold on to that promise. And maybe you've shared that promise with others. Don't, don't feel like it's, you, you should never have. No, hold on to it. And hold on to what God has said he would do for you. Then it says, for I know the thoughts I think towards you. And he says, you shall call upon me and you shall go and pray to me and I will listen to you. And you will seek me and find me. And when you search me for all your heart, I will be found by you, says the Lord. It's prophetic words spoken over this church, over yourselves. There's been the pruning, expect the life of God. Yesterday I had a picture while I was praying with uh, whoever it is that came out to, to, to yesterday's ministry of a canopy that's over this church. So see this roof just kind of inverted and there is just this incredible, incredible 
kind of Holy Spirit river comes from the throne of God. And every time you praise, and this morning's worship was so wonderful, as Johnny just gathered you all to worship, there was puncturing of holes in that canopy. And eventually there's so many holes in the canopy that it can't sustain itself and it has to open up. My goodness, people, that's what you want. You've positioned yourself. You've aligned yourself. There's good things to come. And let me pray for you. Is that all right? <clears throat> oh, God. I pray that you would give this church as a congregation increased responsibility into this region, Father. There are people living in homes that are like graves. There's death inside, dysfunctional homes, alcoholism, substance abuse, all sorts of struggles, and home is not a safe place. Dry bones. Father, today we prophesy, let those dry bones come alive. We prophesy, Father, let those who perhaps were part of the church who've left, let them come back in their droves, Father. We know you want to populate heaven, Father. We know it's not the will of God that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And so, God, we cry out this morning for that which you promised. That's why this church exists in this region, Father, is so that it could be a life house. A life. Let people come and find peace, Father. Let people come and find their identity and discover that actually they've been created for good, meaning fit for purpose. God, let there just be a fresh surrender in the mature saints so they can wash the feet of those who are coming. We anticipate and expect, Father, big things because your promises are true. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.